Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Um, As you know from reading the introduction to my book, The Case for the One True God, A Scientific, Philosophical, and Historical Case for the God of Christianity, I went through a major crisis of faith when I was 18 years old. I uh, was a very new Christian. I was only a Christian for about a year, and I tried to share my faith with some non-believers over social media. And this one person in particular just bombarded me with what I know in retrospect to be the shotgun tactic. He just pounded me with so many questions and objections to Christianity that I just had no idea how to respond to, including uh, basically just how do you know that your God is real instead of all of these other ones you consider to be myths? What, how, do you, can, how can God be all-loving and all-powerful and not uh, intervene to stop suffering? And other objections like that, and it really caused a, a crisis in my faith. I almost went into agnosticism, but I prayed about it, and I prayed about my doubts, and God introduced me to Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, and uh, if, you've li- if you've been following Cerebral Faith, and if you've been following uh, the podcast, or if you've read my books, then you know, you know this story, but today's episode... Uh, I have Hillary Morgan Ferrer of Mama Bear Apologetics on the podcast because I believe that if my parents had the information that Hillary and her fellow authors of this book uh, present to their readers, that what I went through, I probably wouldn't have had to go through. I would have been inoculated. I would have been prepared to deal with those objections, and several others. Um, We are dealing with a new type of culture where you don't have to send your child off to college anymore to have them uh, talked into atheism or talked out of Christianity. I remember uh, several instances in which I go out into public and I see... I, I see like two-year-olds and three-year-olds with iPads and, and cell phones, and I just think to myself, "Gosh, when I when I was that age, I, I I I didn't even start using the internet until I was eight years old, and even then, it was just to look up video game strategies." But kids today are they're going to be exposed to anti-Christian propaganda. All they have to do is Google. Jesus Christ or God, and they can they might run into some Aaron Raw or rational rationality rules YouTube videos or memes, uh, and it, it can it can really do some damage. And so we need to equip Generation Z and what comes after Generation Z because things aren't the way they used to be. You can't keep your children in a Christian bubble. And to talk about how to prepare your children for the challenges that they're going to face is my guest, Hillary Morgan Ferrer. Hello, Hillary. How are you doing? Hello. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for coming on. First off, tell us what Mama Bear Apologetics is, the, the blog as well as the book, and tell us how that came about. Yeah, so Mama Bear Apologetics uh, came out about four years ago, or they're just the, the ministry aspect of it, about four years ago, when someone brought it to my attention that there are a lot of women out there who will not read something unless it's written by a woman. And so, I, uh, you know, I'd grown up being the only woman in the room or the only girl in the room a lot of, at a lot of apologetics uh, conferences and, and talks and stuff. So I thought, good grief, who, who's out there reaching these women and uh, so I decided I, not just the women, uh, women in apologetics, which I'm also involved with. Uh, I'm vice president of women in apologetics, but specifically the moms, because I saw moms as being basically the, the most important target audience, because moms are the ones getting most of the questions first. 
And so I think moms should be the ones answering the questions instead of just having to, to point them off to um, a youth book or sending them off to a youth camp, we, all, all of which are good things. But if we can get mom engaged in answering those questions and in engaging in the dialogue, I just think that basically we, we've equipped an apologist in every single home. Um, so that was the ministry. And I realized that a lot of times women don't necessarily have the time to read all the time. So we wanted to make it very heavy audio resources. So we have a podcast, uh, we have an audio apologetics blog that, that one, um, has stymied a little bit. The girl that, that did it for us had a baby. So, uh, she, she's been going through all the new mom stuff, but, um, yeah, we just wanted to have a lot of audio resources, a lot of blogs that were kind of short and gave you really quick tips and really got to the heart of issues quickly. Uh, and so a little, about, about a year and a half ago, we were approached by Harvest House to write a book. And uh, so I, I pulled in some of the other mama bears and we said, what kind of book do we want to do? And we looked at what was currently out there on the market and we saw a lot of things that dealt with the evidential aspects of apologetics, which I think are highly, highly important. But one of the things that we didn't see out there was, even though we have all these things saying, oh, we need to answer the questions, answer the questions, we didn't have things saying, where are these questions coming from? Because these aren't the same kinds of questions that I was asking when I was a kid and when my parents were kids, and even you when you were a kid. Um, some of the questions aren't the same uh, as they used to be. And so we, we thought, where are the questions coming from? Let's address the worldview that is kind of creating and generating these questions and see if we can get a healthy worldview first so that the questions are kind of stopped before they're even asked because they don't make sense. The child knows that, you know, science and faith aren't at odds to begin with, or they know how truth is formed to, to begin with. And it's not by your emotions, uh, stuff like that. So that that's, um, so that's Mama Bear the book. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I really like what you do with that audio stuff because I know that especially, uh, as a mother, I'm not a mother and I'm not married, but I had a mother and she was just up, she was up working all the time. I mean, if she wasn't washing the dishes, she was vacuuming. If she wasn't doing that, she was driving around and running errands. And so uh, if she was getting apologetics training, it would probably be through audiobooks, podcasts, blogcasts, things like that. She probably wouldn't be reading a lot of books. So I think that's a really, like, if you're, if you're reaching out to mothers, that's a really a good way to go about it. Yep. And that's why we wanted to include it. I, I just, women have an ability to multitask when it comes to hearing a conversation. So I didn't want to have something that sounded like just a university lecture. I've tried to do that while doing the dishes and I just had to keep going back, rewinding, rewinding until I said, eh, forget it. I'm not going to try. But if I'm listening to a conversation, I think a lot of women are like this. They could be doing three things and yet totally overhear their kids and what argument was going on and exactly who was wrong and who said what. Because they can, for some reason, we can follow conversations no matter what else we're doing. So we really wanted to make it sound very conversational and just sound like just two girlfriends sitting around over coffee talking about apologetics and worldview and, and hot topics that are coming up in the news and stuff. Um, nice. So, uh, what is the main difference between, uh, uh, well, I guess, I guess you already answered this. I have a list here of questions, uh, the difference between this book and other apologetics books for, for parents. And you, I basically, you basically already answered that. Basically it's to, to get at where the questions are coming from, not just uh, here, here's some answers to you, to your questions. But I also noticed that you, um, you, with each of the different um, the lies that you address in the book, you you notice you uh, argue that the best and most influential lies have some truth to them, and Absolutely. I I totally agree with that because a bald faced lie hardly ever gets off the ground. But I've noticed that I've noticed that just about every single bad idea that gets traction. It's not 100% false. Give us some examples of, of uh, some bad ideas that uh, – I, I can't remember who was it. It was a preacher. He, he used the analogy of, of rat poison, and he said that, mo that most rat poison is actually legitimate food. It's only a little bit of poison, but that's all you need to kill the rat. Uh, yeah, what now? What are some of the what are some examples of of bad ideas that have good in them? 
Well, I think every single chapter that we have in the, is in the part two that goes through these, I think every single one of these has something good uh, that started out with, um, like the idea of self-helpism is this idea of kind of picking your, yourself up through, uh, by your bootstraps and uh, I can do it more. I just need to understand myself better. There is a place to be to, to say where I am working out my salvation with fear and trembling and I am pursuing that uh, sanct that process of sanctification, that there is something to it, as it talks about in James, about how faith apart from works is dead. So there is something to be said for kind of working on yourself, being self-aware. But what it's turned into is people have taken the self-awareness and the psychological aspect, and then they've just cut the gospel out as if the transforming work of the Holy Spirit isn't the main thing. In fact, they don't make it a thing at all. It's, it's not even mentioned in all that's talked about is the way is psychology pop psychology and workspace stuff and and that right there i think there's some common sense to saying yeah you should be self-aware so of course no one's going to be like no you shouldn't be self-aware um but when it becomes when it takes the place of the gospel that's where that i guess that rat poison comes in um i i would say holly every single one of these uh let me see some other big ones. I'd say postmodernism is one of the ones that everybody immediately, they hear postmodernism and they think, ooh, that's bad. Uh, but there's a lot of good things that postmodernism has actually done for us in terms of looking at different people's perspectives, seeing, seeing other, just where other people are coming from and seeing how they see it, being aware that sometimes uh, it, it, truth is not, there's not a variety of truths. There's one truth. But there's a variety of ways at either arriving at that truth or perspectives of seeing things. And there's even gray areas within Christianity that purpose, uh, personally, I think some of those gray areas, the Lord convicts people in certain ways because it's that's how to best minister to the people he's called them to minister to. For example, some people have a firm conviction that no alcohol at all. And it's because the people that he's going to that the Lord's going to send them to minister to. It really, they need to be above reproach when it comes to alcohol, um, or or they are in danger of slipping themselves. But that you put someone else who's maybe like uh, back when I was a photographer in the arts community, and most of the best conversations were had over a glass of wine. And so I had a conviction that it was okay for me to, to have a glass of wine. Uh, so things like that where we're looking at there are different perspectives and, and not everything is black and white. I think that's a good thing that postmodernism did bring. Um, I think progressive Christianity, I, uh, the quote that I use for this a lot, and uh, Elisa Childers was the one that wrote this chapter. But um, have you ever read the, the book Kingdom of the Cults? It's um, Walter Martin, I believe. I No, I haven't. Um, he has a line in there uh, that says, Cults are the church's unpaid bills. And I think that could be used for a lot of these things that a lot of times cults will come up because they're seeing some aspect of Christianity that is actually a legitimate aspect of Christianity, but that the, the um, mainstream Christianity is ignoring, or it's just kind of slightly off. And I think uh, sometimes they build their entire cult or just an offshoot of Christianity, like we're seeing in progressive Christianity, around things that I think maybe the church has kind of either neglected or gotten wrong, but then they replace the gospel with it, make it the main thing. Uh, and there's some of the aspects of progressive Christianity, like having room for doubts and really digging into questions. Now they've kind of gone off as Elisa shows in the wrong direction, in the sense that they think that the question is more important than the answer. And they start, um, they start waffling on things that are absolutes in scripture instead of leaving things open for questioning. They're starting to just throw the baby out with the bathwater and, and get rid of all orthodoxy. Now, I don't think that's the right way to go. But again, there's that that truth that there were kids who wanted to ask questions and they were told questions are sin, questions are doubt. Stop asking questions, just have more faith. And a lot of people in progressive Christianity, honestly, that is their story. They come from a hyper fundamentalist background that was not open to discussing things. And so they found a community that was open to discussing things. Now they also found a community that was uh, not open to actually having orthodox answers. But again, uh, going back to that uh, quote, cults are the church's unpaid bills. There's something we can usually learn from every single lie that's out there. And the reason why, like you said, it gains traction is it's picking up on something that maybe mainstream Christianity is ignoring. And it would behoove us to see why people are so attracted to that lie.
Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, now, for I noticed you, you mentioned postmodernism. Uh, not a not a lot of people know what that what that term means. Uh, explain, uh, define postmodernism. <laughs> Who can define postmodernism? Um, so, in the book, we go through kind of the three main periods or epics of um, pre-modernism, modernism, and postmodernism. So, the pre-moderns kind of they they were they believed that the ultimate truth came from an authority or from God or the gods. You know, this this could be any religion that that kind of saw the gods as passing down the truth, even you know, the, the Greek gods, that's where they got ultimate truth. That's where they got their authority. Uh, the moderns said, well, all this religious infighting, let's do away with that. Science is going to answer everything. So only things that we can test with our senses, that we can see, that we can, we can you know, see, taste, touch, all that stuff. That's the only thing we're going to believe, not just for scientific truths, but for ultimate truths. So what is the meaning of life? Uh, where do we come from? Where are we going? They thought that being able to use your five senses could get you to those answers. And um, and if you just if everybody pooled their collective reason that everybody would come to the same conclusion. And I think post postmodernism kind of called them on on their junk saying, yeah, that's that's not even possible. Everybody is coming with a different perspective. So postmodernism is coming in saying some people will define it as saying there is no truth, which I, I, uh, I think most scholars of classic postmodernism would say that's that's too that's an overstatement. It's more that they're saying uh, if there is truth, we have no way of knowing it for sure. So basically all you're left with is people's preferences, people's opinions, people's backgrounds, and you kind of have to create truth for yourself. And this is why we're seeing the, the popular people putting the possessive pronoun in front of the word truth. They're saying, well, this is my truth. That's his truth. They're, they're living their truth. And so postmodern mindset is saying there are no absolutes for anybody. Every, um, everybody figures it out for themselves. It's kind of that... Um, what was it uh, from City Slickers? I don't know if how old your listeners are. The movie City Slickers had this cowboy that was talking to this guy. He said, there's just one thing you need to figure out in life. Just one thing. And of course, the guy asks, well, what is that one thing? And he says, that's what you got to figure out for yourself. Um, that would be kind of classic postmodernism right there of just everybody needs to figure out what's true for them. Uh, but along with that, comes basically a negation of thinking that like the biblical truths are actually true or that we can use the evidence from history and from um, from philosophy to actually come to a reasonable rational conclusion about Christianity. Uh, if your kids think that there's no way to really come to truth besides emotions, that's a dangerous platform to be starting from. And that is a majority of our culture right now. And that's that would be postmodernism. But right now we kind of have a mix almost of all three epics going on at the same time. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, what what is what experience? Uh, how did you get into apologetics? You mentioned in the book that you got into apologetics at a very young age. I think you said you were twelve. Was it? I was twelve. I. I so my pastor was an ex-atheist, and he came to Christ the same way that Lee Strobel did, the same way that C.S. Lewis did, by saying, this Christianity thing is stupid. We need to, like, put an end to this. And so he just went out and decided to start studying to prove Christianity wrong. And along the way, he discovered, well, holy cow, it's actually true. And so that's how he became a Christian. So uh, he was not formally trained in seminary. Uh, he just kind of came from the school of hard knocks, and so he always— would include the kinds of things a skeptic would be asking in a lot of his sermons. Um, and I don't think I realized that he was doing it at the time. It wasn't until he did a series, one on the liar lord, liar lord lunatic trilemma, uh, then on the reliability of the Gospels, and then on uh, the evidences for the resurrection. And I remember those three series. And for the first time, my little brain just, you know, my little box just blew off. And I, I was... I was a very committed Christian from early on, but I'd never seen that I could engage my mind with it. And when I saw that I could engage my mind and I could ask questions and I could look at it from a, a skeptical perspective and still come out saying Christianity is true, I was hooked. And basically, I, I think that that solidified my faith for the rest of my life. Uh, a lot of times people can lose their faith 
when they go through uh, just really hard suffering and trials, uh, the, just the basic problem of evil stuff, it's really easy to lose your faith. I've gone through cancer, my, uh, let's see, my mom's cancer, my cancer, my sister just died from cancer. Um, there's a lot of things that I could be angry with God about, but I would always go back to those. I think the one that hit me the most was the evidences for the resurrection. I always went back and I said, I can't unknow what I know. Christianity is true, even if I don't like it right now. So I just need to keep plugging through and God's going to be faithful. But I, I was able to ground myself in absolute truth and not on the flexing, flexity, that's not a word, flex, whatever, by, by changing emotions, flux, fluctuating, that's the word I was looking for, my fluctuating emotions. I didn't have to base it on them. I could base it on something that didn't move, which was, you know, for a teenage girl, that's kind of important. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely, uh, I can definitely, uh, relate to that. I've, I've also had times in which I was, um, you know, really angry with God, really, uh, heartbroken. And I, I just think back, you know, if it wasn't for that evidential foundation, my emotions might have uh, gotten the better of me, and I would have become what Dinesh D'Souza uh, calls a wounded theist. You know, they're not re- they're not really atheist. They're just they're just angry with God. But I'm like, I can't. I'm like, it would be so easy to just conclude that God does not exist on this. If it weren't for the origin of the universe and the fine-tuning of the universe and the minimal yep. facts and the reliability of the New Testament, I can't ignore all that. Yeah, it, stuff like that is why it's like whenever I hear people, in fact, one of our chapters, um, I think the skepticism call is there's not a single shred of evidence for Christianity. And all our chapters are, me- are meant to be a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but at the same time true. And the number of times that I hear someone say that, there's not a single shred of evidence for Christianity. I think, you know what? For There is so much evidence for me that no matter how angry I could ever get at God, I don't think I could turn away because I would feel like I would have to check my brain at the door to do so. Yeah, yeah, it would definitely, I, it, it would definitely uh, take a lot of uh, intellectual uh, legwork to... Talk my, to talk myself out of out of believing it. Yeah. Now, uh, in in chapter one of your book, you have a section called "How to Get People Excited About Apologetics." Tell us a bit about that, because I think most apologists, including myself, uh, we get frustrated in our attempts to to get people to see the need. We're like, people need this stuff. You know, you gotta you gotta get on board. You know, you you don't even if you don't study it yourself, you gotta at least you know have some resources you can point people to. I mean, we need this. Like, how do you, how do you get people excited about apologetics? Well, I think there's two uh, main reasons. And uh, chapter one is basically our first method is just showing the actual statistics of what's going on. I think when people are allowed to live in their Christian bubble, because it's like once, once you get in that Christian bubble, you start only associating with other Christians. You don't associate with people who have left the church. You don't associate with people who have been burned by the church. And you start thinking, well, this is, you know, just it's going along just as well as it always has been. I think when you actually look at the battle of ideas and the number of casualties that are coming from that, all of a sudden you can't ignore the need for apologetics. So um, when it comes to just the average churchgoer, I think getting getting their hands on the statistics, not only of, see, I think the number of kids that are leaving the church, that can be an indicator. I think more important than that would be, Uh, I think the quote that we have by Steve Cable, which is the number of Americans identifying as no religion. Uh, And basically, if you see the graph of that, that's like a it's going straight up and it does not look like it's stopping anytime soon. Those are called those are called nuns, right? N-O-N-E-S. Yeah, those are the nuns. But then secondly, I think especially with moms is. Uh, making it personal. And by personal, it means this is how this is going to affect your children. And so that's one of the main reasons why we did Mama Bear Apologetics is I see women, and I saw this before I even started the ministry, is I saw women when they suddenly realized what was happening with the youth exodus or or when, when their children or child walked away from the faith themselves, all of a sudden I saw a whole different woman come out and this woman who who would normally never be interested in any of this stuff suddenly became a scholar in all things apologetics because she saw how it was affecting her child. And so I thought there's 
there's an instinct there that if we can just rouse that instinct, and especially within women, I think it's going to be strongest in women. In fact, um, I think I mentioned in the article I wrote, um, yes, women need apologetics, but more importantly, apologetics needs women. There's a, a comment from Mary Jo Sharp that one of the things she's noticed is that when she speaks at apologetics conferences, the majority of the people that uh, the of women that come to her are asking questions because of someone else that they know versus a majority of men are asking questions for themselves. So as long as apologetics was kind of framed as answering your questions, I think you're going to have more guys interested than 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 women. And when it started being framed as these are the people that are coming after your kids, your coworkers, your friends, your family. This is how you can serve. Um, all of a sudden, women start going, "Yeah, yeah, I, I want to. I have a friend like that. I have a family member like that." And it became very applicable because it showed them a way they could serve someone else. And I, I don't know. I just think this this feminine instinct of wanting to protect um, the ones that they love, kind of like my husband always says. Um, it's, oh golly, how does he say it? It's something along the lines of, um, you hate the wolves because you love the sheep. And uh, people don't do things just because they hate wolves. You know, someone's not gonna, you know, kill a wolf just because they hate a wolf. They're gonna do it because a, a true shepherd is gonna do it because he's protecting the sheep. And unless you have that vision of the sheep that you're protecting, you're not gonna, you're not gonna understand why it matters to refute the wolves. Yeah, you know I, that what you what you were talking about there, I, I think you're totally right, and it it reminds me of what happened when I was at the National Conference on Christian Apologetics back in uh, 2017. I was standing in line at a, for a food truck with Dr. Timothy McGrew, and we were we were talking, and we were we were stand we were standing there. It was a long line. Oh yeah, uh, I've, I've been at the food trucks at the NCAA. <laughs> it was a long line. And uh, um, there was a woman there, and uh, she she was talking she uh, to Tim as well, and she was at that conference for her son. Uh, he was uh, in college, and she uh, he was he was starting to move away from the faith. He was uh, and he was. Um, I think he I think he adopted a really a really liberal version of Christianity but I think she could see that he was moving towards maybe agnosticism and then atheism he was just going down that slope and yeah, um that's kind of the progression the progressive yeah. Christianity then agnosticism then atheism that's that's a pretty common story yeah and uh, so t uh, Tim McGrew gave her his email and uh, I I told her about my website cerebralfaith.blogspot.com and uh, I was wearing my cerebral faith t-shirt and she took because it, it has the UR it has the logo on it and the URL on it and she took a photo of it uh, so she could look up the articles later and uh, so I, I hope that Tim and I have helped her I, I haven't heard uh, I haven't heard from her I, I didn't get her email but but yeah I mean she she wasn't there for herself she was there for her kid and she was attending all these uh, talks trying to become equipped so she could answer her son's questions. I'm telling you like uh, people have tried so hard to get apologetics into the church if we can wake the mama bears and just raise up an army of mama bears I just think that it's like basically all boats rise in that scenario it's like even if my book does well it's going to make everybody's, you know, stuff do well because women are going to be all of a sudden alerted to, oh, this is something I need to know. And then they're going to start studying. Yeah, I agree. Um, now, in chapter one of the book, we've been talking about the youth exodus. You address three common myths about the youth exodus. Uh, tell us about... That was my echo dot. <laughs> Explain to the audience what those myths are and why they need to be addressed. Um, so there's a myth that basically everybody walks away in college, but then they all come back. And what we're discovering right now is, number one, uh, I like how Julie phrases it because Julie uh, Julie Lose wrote this section. That That's kind of treating your kids like they're boomerangs. Um, and that's probably not the best approach to take. Uh, but what we're seeing is that that's actually not the case is back before, uh, before, you know, a couple of generations ago, uh, Christianity was culturally reinforced. And so people, maybe if they did leave because they were trying to establish career or they were just, you know, in, in school, didn't have time. Once they had kids, they would start bringing the kids back because that's how they grew up. But once you stop having people, growing up in the faith in the same way, which is what we're seeing with the nuns that are now raising their own kids. 
nobody's going to be coming back for nostalgic reasons because it's not nostalgic anymore. Uh, and in fact, if you if you add all the statistics together, it's about 35 percent of um, of the the believers that are walking away each generation because of this, um, either the youth exodus and the fact that they're not returning. Um, there's also the myth that uh, basically if you farm out all this stuff, you know, taking your kids to a wanna to youth group and, you know, or you homeschool them, that they'll be fine. If you're not introducing them to the ideas they're going to encounter out in the real world, it doesn't matter how much truth of Christ you pour into them. I mean, that's a good thing. I don't want to say that it doesn't matter, but all it takes is one person to convince them that truth doesn't exist for all that truth that you've poured into them to suddenly not make sense or to go away. Now, I don't want to negate the role of the Holy Spirit because it doesn't matter how much truth you have if you don't have the role of the Holy Spirit. So I don't want to negate that. But at the same time, if someone is looking for a reason to separate from God, which can happen either if they're going through something that's um, uh, some sort of suffering or if they have a sin that they don't want to give up, if they're looking for a reason to walk away, we are just handing them reasons uh, basically by not answering the questions and not teaching them a foundation. Uh, and then finally, the, the final myth is that they won't need apologetics training until college. That used to be the case. Uh, but we're finding a large proportion. I think it was Barnard that did the research that the, the proportion of kids who mentally checked out in elementary and middle school is is uh, it's like 65 percent. I mean, it's an insane number of kids that are basically going to church either because their parents say they have to or because youth group is just fun enough. But once they get out on their own, they don't actually believe anything they're being taught. That's I mean, elementary and middle school, that is early. So basically, we need to be teaching them uh, <clears throat> to think through their faith. I think really the age that I discovered it at is the optimal age. It's the very latest, I think, you should start, which is 12. I think if we start laying a foundation earlier than that, they might be kind of more black and white thinkers at that point, not be able to reason through the abstract concepts as much. But really, 12, I think, is the very oldest you should start. Um, I mean, if you haven't started by now, don't think like all is lost. But I'm just saying as young as you can start, the better. Yes, I, I'm going I'm going to tell my, I'm going to start my six year old off with Alvin Plantinga's modal ontological argument. <laughs> I'm going to turn him off for it forever. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But video, though, of, um, do you know uh, Jay and Lindsay Menwalt? No. Oh, they're they're little they're little girl. We have a video for, on uh, the Women in Apologetics website of their little six year old given the uh, cosmological argument. It's adorable. <laughs> um, now, in your book, in, in each chapter, you have an acronym that you go through called ROAR. O uh, R O A R. What do those letters stand for, and what is an example in which uh, e each of those can be used? Uh, so ROAR would be, stands for, um, this is how to have discernment and, um, and how to disciple your kids. So uh, the R, the first R stands for recognize the message. So this is when you're, you know, watching cartoons or you're watching a movie or you're listening to music, no matter what you're doing, figure out what the message is that's being peddled. What are they training kids to crave or what are they training kids to think is good and attractive? And what are they training kids to think is unattractive and bad? Um, so that's the recognize the message. O stands for offer discernment. And we phrase it like that because number one, the op offering discernment means you're just kind of, well, number one, it, it means you're affirming the good. So in every single chapter, I try to affirm what is the good that we can glean from this lie first. Like you said, that the lies, the, the, the best lies are wrapped in partial truths. So let's identify those partial truths and affirm those first. Because if you just, um, if you throw the baby out with the bathwater and you toss the whole thing, kids will eventually see that you just rejected a truth. Even though it was a truth that was wrapped around the lie, it's still a truth that you're rejecting. So first you affirm the good and then you reject the bad. And that's offering discernment there instead of going out and just being a finger pointer and telling everybody what's wrong with everything. That's that's not a very gracious way to be as a Christian. Um, a stands for argue for a healthier approach. 
And that would be taking that kernel of truth that we found. And again, like I mentioned before, a lot of times that kernel of truth is something that the mainstream church has neglected. And so saying, okay, how can we take this kernel of truth and how can we say that the, the a biblical worldview actually addresses what they're going for better? What is, what is their goal? What is their motive? What is the aim that they're trying to correct? And how does a biblical worldview address that better? That's argue for a healthier approach. And then the final R is reinforced through discussion, discipleship, and prayer. And uh, so we uh, talk about maybe little activities you can give with your kids, maybe some conversation starters. And actually, you asked me a question at the beginning of the podcast that I forgot to say, what makes Mama Bear Apologetics different than other books? And I would say one of the big differences that we have is we place a very high focus on prayer to the point of where we had Julie Lose, who has been a moms in prayer leader for 18 years. I mean, the whole time her kids were going through school and she went through and she charted each of the chapters and then she wrote up a theologically sound prayer. Uh, we call it pause for prayer, which is P-A-W-S, which stands for uh, praise, admit, which is confession, uh, worship through Thanksgiving and supplication, which is the same model that, that uh, you know, people have heard of like the Acts model or the, the Moms in Prayer model. It's the same model. But we go through and we actually uh, give women prayers that they can pray over their children regarding these lies. So that's our, our roar section. And so our hashtag, if you want to do it, because it's awesome, is roar like a mother. So um, you, I, I read in the um, preface that you uh, you yourself don't actually have children. Is that is that correct? That is correct. That at, is one of the other things that uh, could have been easy for me to raise my fist at God for. But um, again, so, evidence is for the resurrection. Can't walk away. Yeah. So how did you uh, how did you get um, how did you get into gathering all of these mothers to create your your team for Mama Bear Apologetics? And this, by the way. Um, Shows that you, Hillary Ferrer, is uh, proof that you don't have to be a a mama to be a mama bear. That is correct. In fact, on our website and everywhere that we can, we say that mama bears are mothers of biological, foster, adopted, or spiritual children. And we look at um, just the promises to Abraham in the Old Testament, saying you're going to be the father of many nations. He was not talking necessarily just about literal children, but also about the spiritual children that would come through Abraham. So how did I get involved in this? First off, I made sure to tell God that I was pretty sure he picked the wrong person for this ministry. <laughs> We've um, all been there. I... <laughs> yep. When he's like, hey, mama bear, you should start that. Um, that's a long story. Just several nights of sleepless nights and the word mama bear just like bombarding my brain and I couldn't stop. And I thought this really needs to be a ministry. And the Lord's like, yeah, good idea. Do it. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm not a mom. I don't think you're calling the right person. And he said, no, I'm calling the right person. Um, that I have something that a lot of times that moms of uh, the biological foster and adopted children don't have, which is I have the time to research this. And I have the time to put this all together and have a website and create a podcast and all those things that maybe if, if you were a full-time mom uh, with a full-time job, let's be honest, that's how a lot of moms are right now. Um, you wouldn't have time to do. So he said, if, if uh, helping moms equip their children, if that's what I did with my life, then I had been the best mother that I could be. And I have expected people to pull uh, to like, I always made sure when, when people would ask for an interview to make sure that they knew that I didn't have children because I really expected that they would be, Oh, never mind, And they would rescind their invitation or people would say, don't listen to her. She doesn't even have kids. She doesn't know what she's talking about. I have not encountered that at all. I have encountered nothing but um, encouragement. And I think uh, the, the women that I work with, I, I think so many women have been waiting for a ministry like this, that they were just excited to get involved. And so basically, uh, we're, we're uh, the, the tagline or not the tagline, but the the was it the signature on all my emails is we're all in this together. And that really is the motto kind of of Mama Bear of how how can we as women come together and work together to do this, that we are not in this alone, we can work together. And I think women really respond to that idea of community and working together and not just trying to do something on their own. And um, if I'm the one that spearheads it, well, then I'd then so be it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, now, how do you, 
This is a really, really big cultural lie that I'm seeing everywhere, and it's called scientism, which is the you you can only know that which is scientifically verifiable. Um, what are some of the ways that, and of course, scientism? Well, I think this is a I think this is one of the underlying presuppositions of why some apologetic arguments fail. Like mm-hmm. you can't. They're not going to respond to a philosophical argument or a historical argument for God's existence or the resurrection if they even if they don't even recognize philosophy as a legitimate uh, as a legitimate uh, road to knowledge. So how would you refute that? You know, this this uh, also goes by the name empiricism, uh, and so if you have, if if you if you have a kid that comes up to you and says, you know, I want I want you to prove that Jesus rose from the dead scientifically, or I want you to prove God exists scientifically, or you know, prove scientifically that uh, Grandma went to heaven. Uh, how would you respond to that? So first off, we have uh, the chapter on naturalism that we went through several different versions of the title. We weren't sure if we were going to call it naturalism, materialism, materialist naturalism, or scientism, (laughs) because they're all kind of like in the same family. Um, But this idea that science is the only thing that can prove anything, uh, nobody lives by that. And first off, you got to know how you come to knowledge about different things. So a child that's asking you to prove uh, scientifically that Jesus rose from the dead, first off, you have to point out that's not how you do history. That's not how you do any history, not not just Christianity, but any history whatsoever. And we have to say that we're going to completely cut off entire areas of knowledge like history if we're not going to prove it scientifically. Really, the only things you prove in that method are going to be stuff that's in physics, chemistry, and sometimes biology. It's things that are repeatable. So the, the idea behind the scientific method is you want to get something that's repeatable. Anything dealing with people is never going to be repeatable. The best you can do would be kind of along the lines of um, sociology, which works in percentages. So if a kid is asking that, first off, um, they don't understand how, uh, how knowledge works to begin with. Uh, But basically, you don't have to just slam them and say, you know, you fool, you don't know how knowledge works. But you start asking them things that they already grant. And the most obvious one is to say, why do you think that science is the only way to prove knowledge? And then, of course, they say, well, that's the only reliable way. And then you say, okay, prove that. Show me the test tube that you came to that conclusion with. You have to sometimes get people to realize that they're not abiding by their own rules. They create this rule that something has to be proven in, in the lab somewhere, but yet they'll use a philosophy that was not proven in the lab in order to create that statement to begin with. So if you can get them to see that they're not even following their own rules, that can start to loosen up the reins. But then you start finding other things that they would um, you know, say to be true, like, okay, so are we going to ignore all of history because we can't repeat it? Well, that's a ridiculous statement to come to. That's what you would call hyper-skepticism, which we deal with in our skepticism chapter. Um, so I think just uh, understanding, and this is where I think this book gets to the root of the questions. Like I said before, um, that we're not talking just about their questions. We're talking about where the questions came from. If you can understand skepticism and hyper-skepticism, and you can understand naturalism, you can start answering their questions without answering their questions. You start questioning the worldview that that question is based on, and that question starts to go away. Yeah, that's that's really great. I I, I liken it to um, a doctor uh, removing a cancer or a tumor or, or something rather than just treating the symptoms. Like if you if you get, have a headache and you just give them Tylenol or Fioracet or ibuprofen or, or something, right? Uh, or you give them throat lozenges to deal with the sore throat or cough syrup. Uh, but you actually get rid of, you actually attack the thing that is causing the problems. And so, mm-hmm. and so sometimes instead of just treating the symptoms, i.e. answering the question, uh, you can go after the the presupposition or the underlying assumption or the uh, that is uh, bringing that out, and I, I do think that that's a really effective way to um, remove the doubt. Yep, that's. I mean, that's basically the thesis of the book, right there. What you just said <laughs> of the goal. Now, um, 
how would you answer a child who asks you whether or not the Bible is still relevant today? Like, like how, like suppose uh, a child came to you and said, you know, the Bible was written thousands of years ago. The New Testament was only written 2,000 years ago. The Old Testament was written even before that. How can a book that was that written that long ago be of any relevance to uh, those, to us who are entering the third decade of the 21st century? Well, um, I would first say that that question is not coming from thin air. Now, uh, this is not the time to go into basically all, you know, uh, all the, all the knowledge that we have that's accumulated over the last, you know, 6,000 years or however long and what we can learn from all of that, that question's coming from somewhere. So I would actually, inst- I, I would look past the question and look at maybe what's going on that they're not saying. And I would ask them, why do you ask that? Which parts do you think are maybe less relevant and see if they, they're struggling with something find kind of get to the root cause. One of the, one of the things that I think apologists need to learn how to do is to look past the question and, and really look at the questioner and see where the questions are coming from. Um, and then start trying to address the root question as opposed to maybe what they're presenting the question as being. Um, Because no one asked that, very few people would ask that for no particular reason. They're usually going to have a particular topic that they're thinking of and they're thinking, well, the Bible says this, this is what I'm seeing in culture. It doesn't seem like it's even written in this, you know, for the same people group. Why is the Bible relevant? And then the question comes up. So you just kind of have to dig a little bit and see what was the route kind of the A to B to C to D to E to F, then the F, they asked, why is the Bible relevant? Let's look at the A through E first uh, and see where that came from. Yeah. Uh, usually usually I, I, I've answered it by pointing out that people don't really change. Uh, society, you know, our technology changes, our science changes, and, you know, what we wear change, but people, the they don't, we don't really change. Um we we you know we struggle financially people back in the first century struggled financially we struggle with sexual sin and temptations and they struggle with sexual sin and temptations we struggle with greed and coveting they struggle with greed and covered and coveting we need to be reminded to um be loyal to Yahweh and they needed it gosh Israel needed needed it probably more than anyone yeah. <laughs> but uh, i i point out usually i point out that it's just you know, human humankind. Uh, we the only thing that we really change in is technology and fashion. <laughs> I would kind of disagree with that in a little bit. I would say there's a difference between people changing and cultures changing, and I think that culture does change, but people don't. The root issues of people don't change. But the way it's manifesting culture does change, and I think a lot of times kids are going to see how that culture has changed. And um, it's, it's kind of the difference between when people are talking about evolution, individual organisms don't evolve, populations evolve. And it's the same thing for people. People don't change, but cultures do. And so I would think that they would be, first and foremost, be asking about culture. And so I think that would need to be dignified before we point out. We can show how culture changes, but show how people within that culture don't. And I think there's just an extra step to that that they would probably need explained. Right, right. Like the apostle, like the the Corinthian church didn't have to deal. You know, they were dealing with various sexual sins, but they didn't have to deal with uh, internet pornography. Yeah, well, even if you look at um, like uh, I I have attended things for uh, uh, like gay pride marches back when I lived in California for just standing out to be a, a loving voice of the church, not saying, "Hey, you know, we affirm everything LGBT," but uh, back in the the two thousands, I remember being involved with people that were like passing out water bottles and saying, um, we're sorry, the church hasn't loved you, uh, the way Jesus loved you. And just, you know, things like that. But, and I had someone come up and and try to do an interview with me and on on video and they say, what did Jesus have to say about homosexuality? And I started to kind of give the, you know, all sins are the same and, and he didn't elevate it as higher than anything. And the person just cut me off and said nothing. He had nothing to say about it and turned and walked away. And I realized at that point, wow, he's right. I look in the Gospels and Jesus doesn't have anything specifically to say about homosexuality. Now, the reason why, and this is something I've been kind of uh, going into with one of my mama bear partners, 
why doesn't Jesus say anything about this? Well, we think it's because he was predominantly um, ministering to a Jewish audience. Jewish audience had knowledge of the law to begin with, the law of Moses. And so there was a lot of basic things that they didn't have to, Jesus never had to go into. Now you look at the epistles with Paul, and there's a whole schmear stuff that he has to go into that Jesus never had to address. The people Paul was addressing had to be told, don't sleep with your mother-in-law versus the Jewish people kind of already knew that's not something that you do. And so that would be an example of how you have two different cultures, but this the sin is basically the same. You have sexual sin in both cultures. Se- uh, you know what Christopher Yuan would call holy sexuality that's elevated in teachings of both Paul and Jesus. But the way he goes about that depends on the culture that he's talking to. Yeah, so yeah. Know, we're kind of getting off topic here. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I, yeah, I was, I've noticed that same thing. I, I was, I, I've come to that same answer uh, about why Jesus didn't address homosexuality independently. I was thinking like, you know, it's probably because he didn't have to. I mean, the Jews had the book of Leviticus. They had their Old Testament. He, mm-hmm. he would, I can imagine Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount saying, uh, men having sex with men is wrong. And a, a Jew would cry out, we know that. Right? Yeah, exactly. Someone going, duh, tell us something we don't know. Yeah. So th- thank you for coming on the uh, Cerebral Faith podcast. Uh, now give us the uh, exact, um, t- tell us where we can find you. Is it mamabearapologetics.com or .net or .org? I usually just find it by Googling it. Yeah. MamaBearApologetics.com, and it's mama spelled M-A-M-A. You would not believe the number of variations of mama I have gotten from people. (laughs) I'm like, is it just M-A-M-A? Come on, people. This isn't that hard. Uh, So, yeah, MamaBearApologetics.com, and you can contact us through that, and you can get the book. It's available on um, Harvest House, on Amazon, on Barnes and Noble, on Target. You can sometimes, I would say, first first option, go into a Barnes and Noble and see if you can get it there. Because the more people they have requested there, the more they'll keep it on their shelves, the more people will see it. So, uh, and it's fun to buy a book in a bookstore. So, uh, but we've got that, and we've got Amazon. You've got a lot of options here. Yeah, um, and you can they can find the podcast on MamaBearApologetics.com as well, right? Correct, and it's on iTunes. And it's on iTunes. So thank you, Hillary, for coming on, um, and thank you, uh, listeners and Cerebral Faith patrons, uh, Jordan Apodaca, David Parrish, uh, James Whitaker, and uh, David D- David Parrish. Oh, Kevin Walker. Um, thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith podcast, and I will see you next time. Peace out. <laughs>